0: Listener Production. Hello, Sasha Barba Gatt with you for today's episode of The Briefing. In recent weeks, you've probably heard increasing mentions in the news of the Houthi rebels. They're based in Yemen and have been targeting Israel in the wake of the Gaza conflict and also ships in the Red Sea. But who are they and why are we suddenly taking notice of them? On today's briefing, we will get you across everything you need to know about the Houthis. But first, let's get into today's big stories with Antoinette Latouf. It's Wednesday, January 17.
1: G'day, Sasha. Hello, everyone. Penny Wong has vowed to double Australia's humanitarian aid to occupied Palestinian territories, including Gaza, as she kicks off her Middle East visit. Australia's Foreign Minister held talks in Jordan yesterday, after which she promised an extra $21.5 million in funding. I think there is increasing concern about uh, the protection of civilian lives uh, and we will continue to express uh, those views uh, to all parties. So this package looks to address the ongoing regional refugee crisis with a focus on women and children and includes $4 million for the Red Cross.
0: Wong also emphasised Australia's concern at the humanitarian crisis in Gaza, calling for safe access into the territory for humanitarian groups to be able to deliver aid and also assist in the safe passage of civilians. Meantime, and this fits right in with today's briefing topic, Houthi rebels have again targeted a ship in the Red Sea, this time striking a Greek vessel flying the Maltese flag. The US has hit more targets in Houthi-controlled areas of Yemen, including four Ship missiles. So yeah, if you want to kind of get your head around all of that, make sure you tune into the briefing later on.
1: And Sasha, I think it's interesting and important to point out that Penny Wong is also visiting the occupied Palestinian territories, which a lot of other Western leaders haven't done when they have gone to the region. She has been criticized by the political right for not visiting October 7 sites in Israel, but Albanese has clapped back saying, look, this is not about being a photo opportunity. And both Albanese and Wong have condemned the expansion of Israeli settlements in the West Bank, which have been happening while um, the conflict and violence ensues in Gaza. But Greens and pro-Palestinian advocates, they want Wong to be a bit more forceful and insist on a ceasefire during her trip, or at the very least reiterate calls from the Australian government. And that, of course, comes as Israel vows not to stop. And that's as the Gaza death toll nears 24,000, and that's 100 days into the conflict. And he's gone from a win in the Iowa caucus to the courtroom... We're talking about Donald Trump, of course, turning up to the defamation trial against him in New York as jury selection gets underway. So this case, it is hard to keep up with them because there are 91 lawsuits underway, was brought against him by writer E. Jean Carroll. And it's over the former president's comments following a separate lawsuit in which it was ruled he sexually assaulted her almost 30 years ago. So the case will ultimately decide how much in damages he'll have to pay Carroll and Trump's lawyers are flagged. They'll call him as a witness, but they will not be able to argue his innocence with the judge, Lewis Kaplan, saying the fact that Mr Trump sexually abused, indeed raped, Miss Carroll, has been conclusively established and is binding in this
0: case. Yeah, the Trump show rolls on. Hey, this all comes after his resounding win in the Iowa caucuses. That's the first big event in the 2024 race to the White House. Look, next stop is New Hampshire and that is expected to be a little bit more difficult for the former president. Uh, the other Repu- one of the other Republican nominee hopefuls Nikki Haley has a much stronger supporter base in that spot. However, her third-place finish behind Ron DeSantis yesterday has slowed her run. So, you know, it's such a circus what goes on in US politics. I think we all kind of sit here and go what, what's going on? We did a deep dive with Chas Lichadello yesterday yes. to just break
1: it all down because we were like, can you please explain to us the significance of the Iowa caucuses? And the interesting thing about Iowa, yes, Iowa loves Trump. Um, it's important to note that it's not representative of the United States or even representative of traditionally Republican states. It's very evangelical. So 52% of the population have the Pentecostal faith. So it's not as religiously or racially diverse as other parts of the country. So as you pointed out, New Hampshire is expected to be more of a sense check of where the nation is. In um, a speech to his Iowa fan base, it was really interesting to hear Donald Trump say something to the effect of like, look, I don't want to say anything bad about the current president, but he is the worst president in (laughs) our history. And I'm like, if you don't want to say anything, if that's the nice summation. It's of, a worry. Yeah, like, what, is, what are your bad comments yeah. about Biden? So I found that pretty hilarious. But of course, he got a resounding applause and lots of cheers from his fan base.
0: And awards season continues to roll on. Yesterday, it was the Emmys in LA, which were actually delayed by four months because of the actors and writers' strike. Now, this was the big one. Singer Elton John making history by becoming the 19th person to reach EGOT status, winning an Emmy for Best Variety Special live for his Farewell from Dodger Stadium tour. Now, EGOT status, if you're in the dark like I was before our wonderful producer came in and informed me what that meant, it's when a person has an Emmy, a Grammy, an Oscar, and a Tony Award. Now, Succession was also the big winner, taking home six Emmys. Ozzy Sarah Snook winning Best Actress in a Drama for her role in the series. And that follows her wins at the Golden Globes and Critic Choice Awards. Oh,
1: I love Succession. I also love Sarah Snook. While Quinta Brunson won Best Actress in a Comedy for the show she created and starred in, Abbott Elementary, uh, and also became the first black woman to win the award in more than 40 years. And, of course, the other big winner of the night was The Bear, which also won six gongs, which I absolutely loved watching. Have you seen it, Sasha? I haven't. It's on my list, though. I'm
0: actually re-watching Succession at the moment because I watched it last year and was just gripped. And now I want to go back and pick out all the little things that I missed in the first run. Right. Um... Speaking of, I want to go back to EGOT because you might be going, oh, who else has, who else has scored that status? Whoopi Goldberg, Andrew Lloyd Webber and Jennifer Hudson as well, which I was like, oh, of course. She's done, you know, a lot of movies and stuff, but she's also been in, um, in musicals. So, yeah. Um, Sir Elton was not there. He had a knee operation, and I love the comment he made on Instagram. Uh, He said he's on cloud nine, but he joked his knee problem was a gentle reminder, uh, perhaps of a lifetime (laughs) spent jumping off pianos. So uh, nice little uh, accolade there for Sir Elton John. Look, before we finish, there's something else in the news today across the country and even overseas, and it's none other than the woman sitting across from me, Antoinette Latouf, ABC staff are threatening to strike over your sudden sacking while presenting ABC Mornings in December. And I just wanted to check in and see how you're going, given everything that's going on. Obviously, you can't say
1: too much, but how are you going? Sasha, you know we're in the business of writing news, sharing the news. I often comment on the news, but it is super strange when you are the news. There has been so much support from our wonderful listeners. Uh, I try and respond, but to everybody who reaches out to me, but I'm struggling to do so. But also members of the public are coming up to me on the street while I'm, in, while I'm getting the groceries. When I was on a run the other day, a woman came up to me and just hugged me and started crying. So it's very heartening to see so much concern and solidarity from the public, but also from my media colleagues. And a few of my idols, like British broadcaster Mahdi Hassan and Kenneth Roth from Human Rights Watch have reached out. So, so I'm okay. Thanks for asking. That's really good to hear, Antoinette. Thank you so much for sharing.
0: Uh, and that is all for the headlines today. But next up is our deep dive into who are the Houthis? Ships in the Red Sea are increasingly coming under attack from Houthi rebels. The Iranian-backed, Yemen-based group has threatened to continue their strikes in a bid to disrupt ships from delivering goods to and from Israel. There have been around 30 attacks towards international shipping lanes since mid-November, and the Houthis campaign has forced the world's largest shipping companies to avoid the Red Sea, one of the most critical waterways on the planet. The US and UK and Australia recently carried out strikes against the rebels. So, who are the Houthis? Where did they come from? And could these Red Sea skirmishes lead to a wider conflict in what is already a powder keg region? Sarah Phillips is Professor of Global Conflict and Development at the University of Sydney. Professor Phillips, thanks for joining us on the briefing today. Look, the first question I have might seem a silly one, but I work in a busy newsroom with lots of talented, smart, educated journalists, and I've probably heard... 10 different ways of pronouncing this group. Am I saying it right? Is it Houthis?
2: That's correct. Some people pronounce it Houthis, but it's Houthis with a hard H at the beginning.
0: Okay. Well, that's the first cab off the rank in trying to better understand this group. Now, it does feel like the Houthis have kind of come out of nowhere. When and where did they form?
2: So they formed in North Yemen really in the early 1980s. That was the antecedents to the movement that we see now. And it sort of slowly built over a long period um, until the 1990s when they had one of their key founding leaders, Hussein al-Houthi, actually serving in the Yemeni parliament for a while. Uh, Long story short, that went quite badly, largely as a result of former President Ali Abdullah Saleh's technique of playing both sides against the middle. And things went downhill and a series of civil wars between the central government led by former President Ali Abdullah Saleh and the Houthi movement uh, between 2004 and 2010. So they've sort of really had that military experience for 20 years now and And they've really been able to to use this to gain a large amount of uh, territory within Yemen. They probably control about 60 to 70 percent, possibly more, more more like 80 percent even of the Yemeni population. And they exercise very, very brutal rule.
0: What's their motivation? What's their goal? What are they trying to do? And how many people are involved in the group?
2: So they've got multiple intersecting goals. They are an ideological movement. They are an anti-imperialist movement, and they are a domestic uh, insurgency that is holding territory and claiming that it's uh, the legitimate government. Now, Their goal is to control all of the north of Yemen and really to seize the oil fields that are just currently out of its reach and to control the ports because it requires access to those economic resources to be able to maintain an economically viable political space. The number of people that are involved is very difficult to tell. Uh, they have quite a sophisticated supervisory system of governance whereby they empower people in the governorates and then down to the local community level to essentially monitor the population and to report back on any behaviour that is potentially against the rule of the Houthis. And that is exercised very brutally. Again, one of the points that I wanna get across here is that they have these two, or they have multiple strains to to their identity. And what we're seeing now is that they've gotten a very, very good uh, name in the Middle East for being willing to stand up to what Israel is doing in Gaza, where no other uh, state or state-like actor has been willing to do that. And so the Houthis, which has got you know, have really um, done, I would say, an appalling job of governing territory within Yemen um, and again have really treated people horribly. They're not paying salaries. People are routinely imprisoned, tortured, executed. They've gotten a real shot in the arm of legitimacy because they are seen as standing up for the Palestinians against uh, what Israel is doing in Gaza.
0: Mm, Which makes it even more complicated, I suppose. The other question that I have had based on, you know, the news reports we're getting out about the Red Sea, which we will get to, is the fact that the Houthis are Iranian backed. What does that mean in the grand
2: scheme? Look, the level of Iranian support is still hotly debated. It's certainly present and it has certainly increased a lot. Now, the accusation of Iranian support has gone right back to the earliest days and not for nothing. The Houthi family uh, and its the founding members of this movement spent a lot of time studying in Iran and they have very solid networks there. Now, this is the the, the Houthi wars from the early 2004 period onward were largely, though not entirely, self-sustained. This was a group that was, you know, largely able to to fight this battle against the central government without large amounts of external support. That support came later, and it's very difficult to pinpoint when exactly it started to come in large amounts. Most people sort of put it around about 2007, 2008, and then it really kicked off uh, with the Arab Spring, and then the subsequent coup that the the Houthis led into. 2014. So there is absolutely a very clear amount of, or a very strong amount of Iranian support for this group, but that's not to say that they control what the Houthis do. In fact, quite often you'll see the Iranians sort of saying, oh, actually I wouldn't go that far and the Houthis do it anyway. So it's not that they can necessarily exercise command and control authority over them at all, but they are aligned in many ways in their goals and in their ideology. So there's sort of a synthesis there.
0: Let's talk about the Red Sea. So I first saw this pop up maybe a month or so ago where it was talking about ships in the Red Sea being targeted by these drones. And then I saw the word for the first time, uh, Yemen-based rebels, the Houthis. What's the significance of the Red Sea and how is the US and the UK now being drawn in to, uh, I guess, fighting back?
2: So the significance of the Red Sea is huge. To get to the Suez Canal, you have to pass through a very narrow chokeway called the Bubble Mandeb. Half of that is on the side of Somalia and the other half is on Yemen. It's very narrow and it leads up to the Red Sea and into the Suez Canal. So around about 12% of global shipping goes through that very narrow waterway. So it's extremely strategic. Um, Egypt is very concerned that they are going to lose large amounts of money through the Suez Canal, not being a viable place for ships to go through. So many ships are already going around the, the Cape of Good Hope in Africa so that they can avoid this stretch of waterway. As for what the US and the UK are doing in their military intervention, I think they're hoping against hope that somehow the Houthis will be deterred by some fairly limited strikes on their territory. And I can say with extreme confidence that they will not be deterred. In fact, this is exactly what they want. This is playing into their hands. A little background here, a recent background, is quite important. So the Houthis, as I said, are not well liked by the vast majority of people who live under their rule. Of course, they have some pockets of supporters, but the vast if if you speak to Yemenis, and this is so much of the problem that people aren't speaking to Yemenis who live under the control of Houthis, but I, I do, I do very regularly. And it seemed quite likely that there was going to be a much more robust uh, protest movement emerging against the Houthis. You had on the 26th of September, which was the old national day of Yemen, uh, which the Houthis cancelled and reinstated a new national day, um, you had large protests and people taking tremendous risks to go to the streets to protest the Houthis on this occasion. And the Houthis were very very nervous and were starting to feel like this could be very, very significant danger for them. And then shortly after that, a matter of weeks after that, the uh, Hamas attack against Israel occurred, which the Houthis have seized upon. That's not to say they don't genuinely believe it and they don't have genuine support for the stance that they are taking, but it came at an absolutely golden moment for the Houthis because they were very much on the back foot domestically, politically.
0: Let's talk about conflict in the Middle East, obviously, uh, what's going on in Gaza. Now we've got the issue with the Houthis and the Red Sea and the US and the UK being drawn in, in, as you said, a minimal way, but drawn in nonetheless. Could this escalate to a more widespread conflict between the Houthis and the West?
2: Almost certainly because the Houthis won't back down. As I said, this is what the Houthis want because they are so on the back foot politically and economically within uh, within Yemen. They are not a well-liked group and this is their shot at legitimacy. And it's, it's a very, very good one. The Palestine cause is extremely popular. People feel devastated, outraged, furious uh, at what Israel is doing in Gaza and are grateful to the Houthis for being seen to, to stand up to this. Now that's, you know, these two things can be true at once. You know, people in Yemen can be very pleased to see that someone is finally taking a stand and also devastated that it happens to be the Houthis that are doing it because they know what this means for them going forward.
0: Professor Phillips, uh, a really insightful chat. As I mentioned at the top, I feel like this is something that has kind of blown up quite quickly. And as you've explained to us, it's not likely to go anywhere. So thank you for taking us through and explaining the relevance of the Houthis. And uh, I'm sure we'll be chatting in the future about future moves in the region. My pleasure. Thanks for your time. That was Sarah Phillips, a Professor of Global Conflict and Development at the University of Sydney. And like I said, I didn't know a lot about the Houthis before we started doing our research for this interview. And I feel like things are potentially going to get worse in the Middle East before they get better. That is all for today's podcast. But before you go, I've got a favour to ask you. We are really keen here at The Briefing to hear more from you, our listeners what stories you're liking or maybe not enjoying as much, what you want to hear more about, and even just your opinion on the topics that we cover every day. If you would like to share your thoughts, the best place to hit us up is on The Briefing Instagram page. Just search The Briefing and send us a DM. I'm Sasha Barbagat. We'll see you tomorrow.
1: listener.